What is it? Uh, well, it's called a uh, randomizer, and it's fitted to the guidance systems and operates under a very complex scientific principle called potluck. Ah, no one knows where we're going. Not even the Black Guardian. Not even us. Hello, welcome to the Randomizer Podcast, episode six. I'm Tim. And I'm Charles. And this week we have spoiler warnings, as usual, for the latest episode of Doctor Who, which for us is Praxius, and for all Doctor Who that preceded it. Also, a spoiler warning, too, for Gareth and North Allerton. Everybody knows, mate. Everyone. So after the big, big events of the Fugitive of the Jadun, we completely ignore them and <laughs> enjoy instead a kind of very glamorous holiday in Mauritius and other places. I had a few issues with the episode. You surprised me. I liked the surprise. I mean, it looked fantastic. It was really well directed. The effects look good, the virus, etc, etc. But it just seemed to run out of steam. And a lot of it didn't particularly hold together well. One of my issues was the blogger for a start. I mean, they come to that river or whatever. It's been drained, it's an absolute dump. Even the, the girl that ends up dying says, oh, we're not camping here, and they camp there. Now, who in their right bloody mind would camp in the middle of a dump. They could have walked about 500 yards and just camped somewhere that didn't have a pile of rubbish at it. That was a bit weird. Fair enough. But also, the blogger that survived really didn't seem to give that much of a shit about her, mate. She was so self-absorbed. But then again, a lot of YouTubers may well be. <laughs> so maybe it was a good representation of a YouTuber. I don't know. YouTubers, if you're listening, like, no offence, OK? Um, I mean, that's, uh, this idea of saying what you think and putting it online. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're doing. We're just doing a stream of consciousness. Not to self-explain. Oh my irony god! To Chaz later. Oh damn! We're uh, self-absorbed. <laughs> that could be a Doctor Who monster, don't you think? The self-absorbed love. <laughs> yeah, it could be. As long as we had Peter Katie play this one. Oh god. Uh. <laughs> Well, I think you're full of it. I think it's a lovely episode. You're being so unfair on the kind of dramatic exigencies of getting the plot moving. Oh, I've got more. I'm sure you have. But the pace of this one is crammed full, so it's weird that you say it was running out of steam, especially when you were going on about wanting it to be a two-parter. I'll explain. Go on, then. It takes a while to find out who the enemy is. When we find out who the enemy is, there's no real massive motivation behind it. Yes, I understand they're sort of, you know, trying to find the cure for this virus etc and the virus is a great plot mover but it just it like I say it felt like it ran out of steam but it also felt like you could have expanded so much more and given it a two-parter if you'd have put in something a bit more threatening it just didn't feel right because yeah. if you'd have put the sea devils in it would have been a fantastic story for them I mean the doctor even mentions the autons you could have used that the thing is this is a doctor who story I know it had a message and it wasn't hammered home you know the way that Orphan 55 was I just wasn't satisfied with it. This could have been absolutely fantastic. It just didn't gel for me. The look of it, everything else is great. The companions, Yaz had a hell of a lot to do, although she made some very weird choices yes. by just following someone who is in breathing apparatus to, you know, wherever they're going. I heard that beautifully random. put by um, someone on a forum. I read. He said, oh, look, these aliens with breathing apparatus clearly can't breathe in this atmosphere. It just 
teleported away, presumably to where it can breathe. Mm. Shall we follow it? What, us without breathing apparatus? Yes, us without breathing apparatus. Let's follow it. Exactly. I know, I was kind of just like slightly yelling at the TV at that point. Very, very lucky, yes. But it was great that she had more to do. Yeah, definitely. But I think that you could have expanded that plot, made it a lot more interesting, made the virus a bit of a bigger threat, because really it was only contained to a few people. Planetary. But it wasn't. Yes, it was. That was oh, what they were trying to do at the end. I don't get your problem with this. Yeah, we went to South Africa, Mauritius, but you had about three people. It could have done with the involvement of an organisation like the World Health Organisation or UNIT or whatever. This is what I'm saying about expanding it. Why didn't one of the companions contract? That would have made it a hell of a lot more interesting. I watched it a second time Mm -hmm. and I was struggling because I was really, really bored. This one just didn't hit it for me. Maybe a viewing in a couple of years or whatever. I'll completely change my mind. But well, after we've shown some colourful lights in your face and given you kind of personality adjustment, I think that should do it. Mm-hmm. I don't get it, man. I don't. It's like this was probably my favourite episode all season. Oh God, no. <laughs> I think it was. I just, on sheer pace and excitement, it was unrelenting in a good way. I think, you know, by and large, there was no really heavy-handed stuff. The only pause I had was when the kind of environmental topic reared its head again, but it didn't go all over from 55. You know, just sort of got that in and got moving with things. And there was a global threat. There was jeopardy. The companions seemed to work better by being split up and paired off with different people. The blogger, yes, it was a bit weird that she was all kind of au fait after her best mate was suddenly exploding. But also, you're caught up in a sci-fi plot. You're running down corridors. You don't have time to stop and grieve. You know, it had room for the reflection on the relationship between the two characters, the astronaut and the cop. That nice scene on the beach with Graham. Graham was doing lovely stuff in that scene. You're right that Ryan's being kind of left in the dust by the other two, especially now Yaz is getting some some work to do. There was another couple of like odd notes that the guy who got eaten by the birds on the beach was completely unremarked and unremembered. But partly that's the pace of things, you know, Mm. it's not by far, it's not the first time in Doctor Who's long history that a smaller role has copped it and Mm. been completely ignored. You'd just expect better from this era, acknowledging the humanity of the smaller parts as well. To me, it's basically less than the sum of its parts. Mm. It had a lot of good elements, it just didn't gel together very well for me. You know, if you're going from lowest to high, I would rate it Orphan 55. Praxis and then Nikola Tesla, and then Skyfall and Jadun. No, I loved it. I was gripped. I was thrilled all the way through. I think we were talking about how it would be nice, like with the Ragnot, to have just one line acknowledging the similarity with the the Scythra and the Ragnos. It would have been nice in this to have one line acknowledging the somewhat earth-shattering or universe-shattering events of the previous episode. The previous episode led directly into this one, so Mm. hence that's why everybody was already mid-plot, as it were. true. But not without a kind of pause for planning and division of labour, because Mm -hmm. we come into the episode, sure, hard on the heels of the the three locations being set out, but mm. everybody's off at some place with their job to do. Ironically, in. that was one of the things I really liked. Well, it was it was great. It's sort of like, we're here now, oh, we're here now, we're here mm. now, and then bringing those threads together was nice. Mm. I really loved it. I thought there were some, some weak points for sure, and I've only watched it once, so I'm going absolutely on first impressions. And, you know, it's, it's almost a week since it was on, so my poor tired brain is no doubt forgetting all the horrible flaws in it. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily pay too much attention 
intentions, my opinion. Over. <laughs> okay. I just, you know, as I say, it's a very personal opinion from what I've read. Most people seem to love it. And I'm really, really happy about that. I am genuinely very happy if people like it. I don't have this thing that just because I don't like it, everybody else should... <laughs> Feel like that. Well, I, mean, I totally that's... feel the opposite. It's like that music thing we talked about last yeah. time. That you know, I, I don't see why this doesn't just reach you the same way it reached me. I mean, it's not the greatest work of art I've ever seen by a long chalk, but it's just strange to me. Well, that... to me, that sort of thing that you know everybody should like it is that sort of creeping element of fandom. Fandom you orthodoxy. Know, nobody can criticize the deadly assassin, for example. And if you dare to criticize it, you know you're like a fucking heretic. Yeah, or time lash. Anybody who says a bad word. Yeah, about that. exactly. I will, I will put Outcast. them to death. I I had a ball watching the episode, and Good. that's what I want from Doctor Who. Now we've talked about this a few times. Just. Mm being excited by it and I'm sure I will kind of go mm, mm, yeah okay once I sort of look at it more I think it's also yeah. I'm feeling slightly chagrin of the buzzkill that it's like, it's just like I would love it first but I think we were like this with Spyfall yeah. one, at least weren't we yeah. we were both like Woo, it's great yeah I mean it is fantastic when we both love it I definitely get that you know because you kind of have this excitement about talking about it yeah. and if you've got one that really loves it and one that I mean don't get me wrong I didn't hate it <laughs> I, I, I have to keep saying this I didn't hate it it just as I say didn't particularly gel as well for me but I mean there's so many good elements to it yeah. you know I mean it looks absolutely fantastic cinematography yes. direction you know those beautiful shots of the beach etc mm -hmm. etc et lovely acting great yep. throughout really nice um characters you know the astronaut and the cop etc and although i was disappointed in the sort of reveal of the villain you know i thought she was good doing what she was doing well, Suki's not really the villain. She's an antagonist for a while, but yeah. you know, maybe that's part of the, the issue. I is think there isn't a direct focused bad. Yeah, I mean, it's Doctor Who. You kind of need some But there was something. Thing, yeah. There was this global threat. And it was um, just not embodied in a way that sometimes the show does in a really kind of clunky way. I mean, mm. if you look at, like, Invisible Enemy, mm. when your virus, in this case, is embodied by a giant space prawn. Personally, that was something that I was thinking about, and I enjoy Invisible Enemy more than that, mm -hmm. even with the giant space prawn, because it gives you a sort of focus. Something for the doctor to spar with, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. You can't really argue with <laughs> a, a virus that has no face, as it were. Well, you know where my mind's gone now, that sort of <laughs> Red Dwarf, where Lister is infected with the sentient virus, and it's yeah. got this kind of cheesy DJ voice. Hey, welcome to your death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But natural disaster is a theme of the season. This is also, maybe it's a modern point that there isn't always a clear-cut villain. That's a difficult not point. It's but not Why really not? Why can't it be? Because... The whole point is to be entertaining. Yeah, okay, you were entertained. Entertaining <laughs> and have some sort of antagonist, a proper antagonist. That's basically yeah, how Doctor Who's always worked. That's oh, I know you're not an aggressive oldie, and so you're I'm not, not a proper Doctor I'm Who not, anymore. I, I know do, you're not that, yeah. but that's the argument of that. But that's fair enough. But I, you know, I can sort of do a lot of things with Doctor Who. But if I'm watching it and I'm bored because it could have been easily fixed, that annoys me. My entire sort of reaction to it was 
Meh. So I think to cheer me up, uh, we will ask Dr. Schultz a question. We must ask the doctor. The show has often dealt with the subject of black holes. Um, of course, the Time Lord's power is based on harnessing the energy from black holes. And in The Three Doctors, the Doctor is sucked into an alternate antimatter universe on the far side of a black hole where they are confronted by Omega, the renegade Time Lord. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Schultz. Can you tell us about the scientific research behind black holes and whether there's any kind of reality to the idea of an antimatter universe, a sort of inverted domain? of the strange and dangerous antimatter. Well, of course, this is completely implausible. Thank you, Dr. Schultz. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, do you know what? I think I'd like a second opinion. A man is the sum of his memories, you know, a time lord even more so. So this is the part of the show we call Your Cheating Memory, where we randomly select an episode from the vast history of Doctor Who, and then we sort of burble about it for a few minutes based on what we can remember, and then we go away and watch it, and then burble about it some more. So last time we were, let's say, delighted to select an undisputed classic of Doctor Who, one of the greatest shows in the... Oh, hang on, it was Time Lash, wasn't it? Yes! Oh, we had such fun. And oh. So Time Lash, for those of you not familiar with classic Doctor Who, is a Colin Baker story, and it's regularly chart-topping as the worst story of all time. Yeah, I mean, what are its contenders? The Oh, Time in the Rani. Time in the Rani. Uh, Horns of Nymon. Horns of Nymon. Uh, Twin Dilemma. Twin Dilemma. Poor Colin. Orphan 55. We are starting a swear jar for Orphan 55 <laughs> every time we mention it. We're going to be rich, man. Yeah. So we sat down and we put ourselves through the time lash, and it was great fun, I think. Oh, God, I loved it. It's, it was interesting. so cheesy. One of the things we were talking about was the fact that when we're watching uh, an episode that disappoints us and feels bad, like, well, for me, just the last two minutes of Orphan 55, if we're watching that now in the current series, it feels a lot more dangerous. It feels more serious, more threatening, because we want the show to be good and we want the show to be well-received and to continue. But yeah. to watch an episode that feels like it's mishandled feels like a threat to the future of the show. Whereas, what, 30 years later, Time Lash, which would have been all of those things at the time, is now like a, a glorious, bumbling, joyous romp, romp of yeah. nonsense. And, well, where to begin? Paul Darrow? Paul Darrow. It's not even sort of uh, subtle. <laughs> well, Paul Darrow's never subtle, let's be honest. But he has a Richard III haircut, <laughs> you know, and he is so doing Richard III in this and literally chewing the scenery. He's blending the scenery and having it as a milkshake. You know, I mean, it is just delicious. The scenery does suffer from being kind of featureless white walls, but only Paul Darrow's teeth marks give it a bit of texture. Yeah. And, and of course, the bit where uh, one of the Malins, you know, he's at a console and he pulls a bit of the console off and, and tries yeah. to sort of hide that he's done it. That's some lovely covering up by the actor who working this quite cheap looking console and I had a sort of premonition I'm not sure if I've noticed this before but I just sort of thought there was something ginger about the way he was handling the sliding control mm. and then ironically in one of the better lit sets it's a gloomier room um, he just pulls the poor lever clean off and just sort of it's delicious oh. it really is delicious you probably fed it to Paul Darrow <laughs> oh my goodness yeah it's, maybe it'd been nibbled a bit already oh good yeah apart from the, the sort of Borad's chamber and <laughs> some of the other areas it, it does suffer from that 
80s yeah, thing of I mean, over lighting. It really it kind of looks like a sort of premier in sort of conference room or something. The delegates from the sackcloth and pyjamas oh, party or something. everybody was in pyjamas or beekeepers out there. Are the beekeeper guards for <laughs> one I'd forgotten? You can see it's it's a sort of cheap and effective kind of way of having anonymous guards, yeah. but it does just sort of beg the question of where are all these bees? Oh, jeez. And of course, that android. I mean, the android is partially genius and just an absolute nightmare and hilarious. I think, I'm kind of fond of it. I think it, yeah. it kind of works in a just wrong way. It's sort of the blue face <laughs> and the kind of gold blonde wig is just a sort of strange thing. And the voice. Oh my God. You should voice. have done this whole segment in the android voice. <laughs> Thank you, Morad. <laughs> So insane. And we notice this tiny little bit where it has a sort of little smile. It's like, it's never made anything of, but it just sort of it walks off short with a little, little smirk. smirk. Smirk yeah. comes across his face. I know it's. Oh. But nothing ever came of it. Nothing blew mm. up or exploded. Mm. There was no smirk without fire. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Borad. We had like a false Borad, which was Dennis Carey as a sort of animatronic puppet or whatever. Before he, he went on to become be. Archbishop, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, then we had the Borad, as it were, and it turns out he's a clone. Mm. And then we had the Borad again. Yeah. And it was sort of similar to the end of later in the season, Re- uh, Revelation, where it's a clone Davros. I mean, in the same season, two stories apart. Uh, maybe. I'd never made the connection before, mm. possibly because it sort of doesn't work. Oh, I don't, I mean, yeah. it, it makes no real difference anyway. Yeah. The poor had's hilarious as well, because when he describes his condition, he was down with the Morlocks, which are these sort of <laughs> horrific... Uh, sort of wormy dinosaur creatures and the gas was released and it excited the Morlock and I nearly fell off the chair. The only thing I could think was that he was fucked to death by a Morlock. <laughs> they do have extremely long necks and not much else. So, yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. The only thing I can say about it in a sort of more serious note is Perry. Perry is treated abominably in Doctor Who. By everybody. <laughs> you know, I mean, she's always at the sort of um, behest of some leering baddie. You know, Sharice Jack is sort of pawing her all the time. Mm-hmm. The Borad's doing the same. You know, he basically says he's going to mutate her. Oh. God, yeah. I mean, even when she's introduced, there's nothing wrong with a bikini or something, but it's so gratuitous. You know, they're putting her in really skimpy outfits. The sort of character arc for Perry is is more of a kind of character zigzag, really, but at least in this episode, I did think one nice touch was that she got to do some of her botany. There's plants in the planet that she gets to be interested yeah, in. Yeah. Half a character moment about. It was very slight. <laughs> Very slight. But it sort of paid off when she then uses one of these acid spitting plants to escape from one of the was it one of the guards coming at her. Yeah. Although as I say, that initial uh, discovery of the plants gets upstaged by Paul Darrow. Showing the plant in the doctor's face. Yes. <laughs> the Borad, the most luminous force in yes. this part of the galaxy. And it's as if he's then doffing his hat. You know, he's absolutely hilarious. My love for Paul Darrow ha- has no bounds. I mean, he was obviously Avon in Blake 7, that's mm. what he's best known for. And yes, it's a very overplayed character, but it's so brilliant. He is absolute screen gold whenever he's on you know he's the most interesting person in the room he does rise above a rather dull guest cast I mean I found Vina was just 
sort of gliding through the show without ever managing to do more than just sort of yeah. play the one note of this character. She literally glides through the sawdust at one point. Yes, the, that was a decent effect, actually. Yeah, it wasn't bad. The time lash itself, oh, it's... <laughs> I think they must have planned to have more of a visual effect on the camera because there is actual tinsel all over the yep. interior of that set. Yeah, I mean, all the tinsel is banished to the timeline, so they <laughs> yeah, obviously, so. you know, it's always it's always winter but never Christmas on Carville. <laughs> when the Borad banned Christmas, they had to chuck all the decorations <laughs> in the time lash. That's clearly one. Oh, God. Certainly there's probably a load of balls down there somewhere. Oh, definitely a load of balls somewhere. All credit to the, to the cast, especially Colin Baker, for doing their best. It was sort of like the worst disco climbing wall ever. Props to Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant for their uh, seatbelt acting in the Oh top. my god, Jesus I forgot about Christ. that. There's a new Who reference to seatbelts, isn't there? Some, uh, I, think, in... I think David Tennant said something about it yeah. or something. But oh my goodness. Of course, that's Herbert. Lovely Herbert, Lemon Herbert. He um, <laughs> comes along and he's, he's terribly sweet and very eager mm. and earnest. And the big twist is that he turns out to be H.G. Wells, Herbert George Wells, author yeah. of the time machine in the war of the worlds and early science fiction classics so again doctor who cheekily claiming to have invented its own genre yeah well of course the time machine features the morlocks and the eloy yeah so you know i mean it's it's a clever plot in that regard it's yeah. you know it's nicely circular it allows for the kind of inspiration of a historical figure by having mm. an adventure in the tardis um he's just so nice yeah, he genuinely is. He's a lovely character, and I remember at the time thinking, wouldn't it be cool if he went with him? Because he was, he sort of reminds me a little bit of Rory in the naivety. Yes. There's something of Adric in the character as well, I think. Yeah. yeah. Very young, perhaps, mm. cheekily just clambering on board the TARDIS and getting on with being an assistant without I waiting mean, to be asked. That was funny when he slipped his wanders in. He's, he's like, hello, <laughs> what's this? There's a lot of nice little moments in it that are mm. perfectly decent in themselves. It's just like, I don't know, talking of being less than some of its parts. When the banjos enter, it's like basically you've got a talking penis on the screen. I don't see that. It's the Morlocks are more penile, but the banjos have this sort of wrinkly, sort of rattlesnake flapped sort of look. Mm. And they're just lit in such a beautiful warm orange colour that they just look really cuddly. Don't get me wrong, I really like the banjos. <laughs> I mean, I was really looking forward to them coming on screen. <laughs> it would have been quite something to see one of those in the, in the studio, but they were probably small puppets I guess yeah I would yeah, imagine we should just uh, petition Chibnall to bring the banjos <laughs> bring back the banjos back oh my god <laughs> they could have been the villain in uh, Praxis really yes <laughs> <laughs> hello we've come to infest the world with plastic that was the thing mm. running through the whole show was really weird choices for voices you know from the sing song Android to the kind of slightly soft spoken and not really threatening but we're going to invade your planet banjos and the Borad had this weird vocal trick when he was in his Jeremy Corbyn appearance and when he was in his dark sinister villain appearance he had a dark sinister villain voice for the one and then this sort of terribly nice voice for the old man yeah, it's just it was just an absolute delight and this is what I really like about this section because we literally don't have a clue what's coming next <laughs> yes. hopefully it won't be the mutants because that will cause a conflict of interest that's true but, we'd have you know. to come up with something yeah well we'll hear about what you thought about that very shortly oh yeah time lash dealt with and I don't know how we're going to top this but it is time to switch over to the randomizer look when I give the word press the button the big one yes maybe it works in conjunction with the others and let's choose another story all right well let's try and find out now what could it be 
Cold War. <laughs> you probably literally just watched that. I don't that, believe you? I literally did just watch that about two weeks ago. No problem. And of course, it's another Matt Smith. Yeah. <laughs> this randomizer does love uh, young Matt. So, Cold War, well, in terms of what I remember of it, it's obviously the return of Ice Warrior. Yes. It's set on board a submarine mm-hmm. during the 80s. And of course, the magnificent, wonderful, godlike figure. That is David Warner. The biggest staple of the 70s has been in practically everything. He held a lot of paper together. He really did. And Ultravox gets a mention in this one. Well, certainly please one Doctor Who fan, I know. I can't look it up. I've got to do it from memory. But I think Tobias Menzies is in the episode as well. Fantastic actor. I'll point him out once we've rewatched. So, Cold War. We are going to get into a submarine, linking us neatly back to Praxius, of course, which also had a crashed submarine. Yeah, linking us back to Praxius, which, you know, I mean, they could have used that. They could have had that sort of, you know, thing with the ice you know. And that would have made it better. Okay. I'm so sorry. I'm trolling now. Well, you're absolutely just goading me. So you uh, still challenge me, young man? Well, it's the challenge section of the show, and finally, finally we get to hear Chaz's thoughts on the mutants. Come on, mate. Well, I can thoroughly say that I watched it. Oh, fantastic. Yes, and oh my God, it is so brilliant. You enjoyed it? I really, really did. Oh, it's absolutely this. fantastic. I mean, All this time. I never knew that Donald Pleasance appeared in Doctor Who. What? And Tom Baker, before, you know, before he was cast as a Doctor, apparently he was sort of missing a bit from this one. I sort of take it it was like a like Dalek cutaway type thing, but... And nudity! I've never seen nudity in Doctor Who. So basically, Donald Pleasance is this professor who is talking about, you know, experimenting on plants and humans. And he's using his students to sort of create hybrids. I assume it's like a prequel to Seeds of Doom. And uh, Tom Baker is a sort of Igor-type character. And is absolutely amazing. And the effects are gruesome. It's the most horrific Doctor Who story I've ever watched. And was it kind of all one big long episode? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've never done that before. Yeah, it was about an hour and a half. Right. Yeah, sort of movie length, would you think? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And is there any chance, perhaps, that what you've watched is not the John Pertwee story, The Mutants, but the 1974 film, The Mutations? Uh... Next week, pal. Oh. Next week. Damn. So it's time for Doctor by Doctor, where we randomly select a doctor and then talk about their era. Now we've moved on to paper technology, the dead tree format, so that we can select from doctors that we haven't already discussed. So Chaz, go for it. Give it a rattle. It's a very convincing sound effect. It is, isn't it? And it... Oh, God. <laughs> done it so well, haven't you? Doctor number six. Number six. Great. Which is good, because we've just watched an episode. I know, we can remember him. Colin <laughs> Baker. Colin Baker was probably the most unfortunate of the classic Doctors in the sense of when he came into the show, a lot of choices were made about the characterization and the relationship with the companion that just didn't land well at all. I think the idea was to make him 
more alien, more brash, mm. less agreeable. So his relationship with Perry, who was his companion for almost all of his era, was frequently argumentative and often just involved scenes of tiredness bickering, which were really off-putting, I think, even at yeah. the time. I, I didn't enjoy them. He, they definitely mellowed towards the, the later times. By the end, it was a very fond relationship, I think. I believe Colin and Nicola Bryant got on fabulously. Oh, yeah. I mean, they still do, as far mm-hmm. as I know. I mean, yeah, it did feel like they were trying to sort of make the Doctor an anti-hero again with, mm-hmm. you know, some of the sort of wilder things of his personality. And, of course, the, the costume <laughs> didn't I- help. I have no problem at all with the costume. I really don't. I think it's sort of... It's space clown and it's over the top, but it's not the worst thing with that era. It's not the biggest failing. Yeah. It's far yeah. too easy to point to the costume. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, yeah, at the time, I probably thought, oh, my God, this is awful, you know. But, mm. I mean, I look at it now, I don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. And as Colin Baker himself said, he said, well, you know, it's a sort of symphony of bad taste, which was supposed to be his character. And mm. also, he was wearing it so he didn't have to look at it I'm sure it reflects that choice to make the Doctor more difficult that's a brave choice and I think it failed I think that's probably the trouble is that the scripts didn't live up to the boldness of that choice I agree I think if it had worked it would have been fantastic you know because it really sort of tried to do something different there with the Doctor and Companion in Stephen Moffat's Capaldi he tried to do the same thing but a lot better with a lot more sort of gentleness and subtlety and I think probably the benefit of hindsight as well yeah of course of course Colin Baker is great Mm -hmm. I mean Twin Dilemma is a really interesting portrait of the Doctor the story is trash but the Doctor is fantastic in that and that sort of scene where he literally attacks Perry yeah that's unsettling it's very unsettling because you've never seen the Doctor like that before and he sort of mellows through the episode you know Mm. to be a bit more stable but he still has these outbursts throughout his era I mean I remember him in Time Lash you know bad bad that's my low point for all of Colin Baker's work on the show is those repeated shouted lines just Mm. ah they're just they're really just awful. And I think he does great stuff with the more sort of meat and potatoes elements of the episodes. But the, the moments where he has to play nasty, mm. I, I do think he holds some of the blame. And, you know, in terms of not managing to... I don't know how. The writing's terrible, but I don't know how you can do this. But the only way through that would be the trick that Capaldi manages, which is to throw out the horrible, disinterested alien line, she cares so I don't have to, mm. but then turn on a dime and be charming the next moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah you're probably right there you know I mean it's it's not fair to Colin you don't have the text to do that under you but I'm asking the impossible I expect but it's those moments are just the absolute worst of his doctor I think uh, I think you can sort of see obviously nowadays the the person who's in the role has a lot more leeway mm-hmm. to do and shape the role better uh, I don't think Colin got that opportunity he basically lobbied to mellow it and yeah. I think that's what his plan was was to mellow the doctor yeah. you know uh, he was even talking about change the costume would change over time and so on taking it from the beginning He's in chaos. His outfit is chaos. Everything about him is chaos. And over time, he sort of becomes more sort of stable as an idea. That would have been interesting. That is a really, really interesting idea. I do like it when the Doctor's a bit darker 
And up until then, occasionally in Tom Baker's time, we had the odd dark moment, but we didn't have a lot of darkness in Doctor Who until Colin Baker, really. It's unkindness. Mm. And that's the sort of antithesis of the character. Mm. You know, Amy says it in The Beast Below, you're very old and very kind. Yeah. Okay, she's talking about the space whale, but she's not as well. Yeah. It's in Fatal Death, you know, you're far too kind and far too silly. And it's just the nasty streak. There's no trajectory to that. It's just just peppered in whenever these ghastly TARDIS scenes happen. And it's a shame because there's so much to love in the Colin Baker era. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, he is absolutely wonderful you know especially in the two doctors mm-hmm. him and pat trout and have yeah. such a great rapport so where would we go for a favorite in that era because Oof. for me i would i am a big fan of vengeance on varos in principle mm. as an analysis of television and the debate around video nasties and violence on television it sort of undermines itself horribly by having the doctor make a quip after a guard falls into a bath of acid. It's a very James Bond moment. Well, yeah, or Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is a particularly brilliant story. A sort of Big Brother society, where yes, everybody is watched and everybody, society. you know, their punishment, they turn into entertainment, you know, yeah. they sort of diversify with their punishment video and then sort of broadcast it as well. You know, whenever of... I visit my mum... Her and her husband are sitting watching Judge Judy. Yeah. And it's not a bloody million miles away, I tell you. Oh. Yeah, I understand. I thought you were going to say something about <laughs> voting <laughs> <laughs> Colin Baker's doctor got a renaissance with, of course, Big Finish. Yes, we've talked and about it that before. really sort of cemented his doctor as one of the greats, I think. It's so lovely to see him be able to do you know what he was wanting to do with it and all that because he had an absolute love when he was cast i remember Mm. him saying he wanted to be doing it for years and you know so (laughs) i i kind of love it when you've got an actor really really loves the part they're in yeah so the colin baker began with the twin dilemma which um had annoying twins and giant slugs. I remember being quite struck by the the image of the giant slug trails, and it was quite a sort of creepy idea, but <laughs> don't remember much else about that story at all. What I do remember very vividly was Attack of the Cybermen with the kind of, the very creepy Cyberman in the sewers, the black Cyberman was yeah. an innovation at the time for the, the series. And of course that was the return of uh, Commander Lytton yes. from Resurrection of the Daleks, played by Morris Colburn. Yeah, a lovely role and a, a mm. great sort of little two-story character arc for, yeah. for that character. Redemption story, of course. Yeah, yeah, very much. And, of course, another guest star on that Brian story. Glover. Brian Glover. Brian Glover. I love Brian Glover. I, it's like, I think of all the bald actors, he and Donald Pleasance. Yeah. Back to that, <laughs> Who was in The Mutants. Bits. Yeah, he was in The Mutants. That's right, Jesus. <laughs> also, the return of the Cyber Controller. It's somewhat tokenistically played by the same actor who portrayed him in Tomb of the Sidemen, Michael Kilgariff. Unfortunately, and not accommodated by the costume, sadly, he's grown something of a beer gut in the intervening years. So it's a decent story. I really, I really like that story. I loved the scenes on Telos. I loved the cryons. I thought they were really interesting. All these elements, you had the thing from the invasion from the sewers so mm-hmm. you know you had Tomb of the Cybermen and they were even talking about Mondas you know because Mondas was due to come into the orbit yeah, of course. so there was so many things in the air being juggled Colin Baker I mean yeah his era does have a prevalence for violence the Doctor being violent but I thought he was uh, he was particularly good especially at the end where the, you actually saw sort of some real emotion from the Doctor when he 
he's talking about Lytton. He said he'd never underestimated quite as badly yeah. as he did Lytton. And I really liked that because it reminded me slightly of Warriors of the Deep, which yes. is always my favourite ending, uh, especially Peter Davison, you know, because with that story, he, he looks like he's been put through the ringer mm. in that story, you know, and he looks awful. And there's that crack in the voice. Yeah. And that was really powerful at the it's, time, you know. It's really rare in classic who mm. to have those moments of self-reflection for yep. the Doctor, and they're precious when they yep. happen. I think. Absolutely. So with Vengeance on Varus, we've talked about briefly, and the Mark of the Rani followed that, oh. and saw the introduction of a new Time Lord character, the evil Rani, played by Kate O'Mara. And this was also filmed in a location called Blist's Hill, which is a sort of open-air Victorian museum in England. Uh, I've been there a couple of times. It's a, it's a lovely place to visit, and mm. they have a whole kind of shtick with people in costumes, and you go into the, the bank and exchange your real money for... Victorian currency and then you can purchase things in the various shops around the village Can I just ask something? Do they have to always be in character? Are they allowed to break character? You know, I don't remember I Because don't remember. I, this is a complete tangent <laughs> well, I love But it. I had to, I have to say I remember there's an episode of South Park <laughs> Where they go to like a western village, right? And everybody's saying, you know Somebody says about mobile What's a mobile phone? I mean, you don't have them in 1872 <laughs> And then terrorists invade it And they're on They're still stuck in character <laughs> And they're, you know, they want the key to the safe or something, and they say, we don't have no fanity. You know, and people are being executed. Oh, and they're still, you know, the guy's going, don't fucking break character for no reason. See, that is, that is the true evil of zero-hour contracts. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just, I'm really, no. I had to get that out. <laughs> I was never that struck by the Rani, and certainly her return visit at the start of Sylvester McCoy's era didn't, didn't do anything to dissuade that. I really liked the Rani. Kate O'Mara done a brilliant performance in that, you know, at the start. She was like, oh, come on, love. You know, and did bathhouse. And I thought she certainly was a better foil than the master in that mm. particular story. But, of course... Of course they have to bring the master gl- into it as well, yeah. don't they? I think in that story, she's a really, really interesting villain. Um, I should revisit it, I think. It's been a while. The other thing is that they've brought the Rani in big finish, obviously, because mm. there's a gap to fill, so... <laughs> but it's Siobhan Redman yes. who plays the Rani. Now, I haven't heard any, but I've got a particular love for Siobhan Redman. I loved her in uh, Between the Lines, The High Life, uh, The Smoking Room. She is a great actress. So The Two Doctors follows a kind of multi-doctor story which always has a certain element of rumpiness to it. But beautiful return for Patrick Mm. Troughton and Fraser Hines as Jamie. A very convoluted and slightly incoherent way of getting them back in, but who cares? The opening scene is very beautiful Mm. because they do it in black and white as well, which I thought was lovely. And of course, they have that second Doctor Jamie sort of double entendres that they always have. Oh, look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yes, my, it is a big one. Pure nonsense, but it's just so great because those two characters feed off each other so well. You know, Jamie really works with the Sixth Doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really great how well he worked. Of all the companions, I'd say the two I would love to see in the new series are Ace and Jamie. Mm. I I love Jamie as a companion. I love 
the second Doctor's era, but I absolutely adore Jamie as a companion. He's so loyal, but he's so funny, yeah. you know? They just have a ball, and you can tell the chemistry between those two actors. It's got a, it's nasty elements, the story, with mm. the kind of cannibalism theme. Also, we have Jacqueline Pierce in this oh, episode, yeah, who played Servalant in Blake 7. She plays a, a upgraded Andragum mm, Jacini. Yeah. Yeah. And the Sontarans return as well. Very tall Sontarans <laughs> from that. I don't know, it's, it's, you get the impression that if they're a clone race, they've certainly had various different versions, but yeah. I guess there's different batches of clones. I, I liked imagine. all the sort of sci-fi stuff about the Kurtz Reimer device and the kind of the dangers of dodgy time travel and mm. so on. It was very similar to the ideas in Talons, you know, like mm, the, the yes. cabinet, the sort of time travel Zygma cabinet thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't have the right thing, you know, he was mutated. It so so yeah. interesting. So it made you look like you'd had a date with a Morlock. Mm. Yeah. Time Lash followed, we've covered that talking of dates with Morlocks, and Revelation of the Daleks was mm. the one we've also alluded to in terms of having the double Davros thing slightly yeah. it's thunder slightly stolen. That was based on an evil in war story it and was. I, that is one of the better Dalek stories I would say, it's very interesting you've got Davros as a spider at the centre of the web mm-hmm. and you've got all this manipulations going on and basically this whole idea of the galaxy is sort of starving and you need this food source akin to Soylent Green you know yeah. which we find out is people and uh, Soylent Green <laughs> <laughs> you find out in this that he is using the corpses that he's not turning into Daleks as a food source also, uh, synthetic protein. That's a great game of Would You Rather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've read here it's based on the loved one. The ah, loved one. Yeah. I think the story fails for me with two of the guests cast, Joe Bell mm. and Hassan Becker. Those two performances just didn't sit well with me at all. I kind of I found the actors played the part so bluntly and yeah. petulantly. And Tassen Becker's kind of turning at the end. It just feels like the kind of the last nasty note in a nasty symphony, rather than any kind of shot. Because her kind of affection and love for him is is played desperately and needily. There's no beauty in it at yeah, all. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, because I mean, unrequited love is very you know you can do some beautiful things with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean it's not a great performance yeah Clive Swift who was also in Voyage of the Damned uh, and he played Mr Copper and that was a quite nice performance I want to talk about uh, well briefly Alexi Sale who pops up as the <laughs> DJ in this and that's a fine kind of comedy cameo he's, yeah. he's quite nice in it I'm sort of fond of Alexi Sale so the fact that he's just a bit of a, a strange character this DJ for the dead I love the way Alexi Sale is now he's like the grandfather of uh, socialism or something <laughs> he sort of looks like Karl Marx now <laughs> the, the two I wanted to talk about were Orsini and Bob Bostock, so William Gaunt, and it's John Ogwin who plays Bostock, mm. his squire. And Orsini is this kind of... It feels like he could have had a series of his own somewhere else in the universe. You know, this this mm. kind of... I don't know, is he a bounty hunter? He's, he's, a, knight uh, he's of, a grand knight. He's a knight of the Grand Order of Oberon. So he's a bounty hunter with a fancy title. There's basically. a wonderful bit where um, Davros is talking about Orsini and I think it's Kara says, you know, some common assassin. He says, there is nothing that is common about Orsini. You know, yeah. he is a knight 
Well, and it was like the respect from Davros is rather wonderful. I think William Gaunt makes the character larger than the it is on the page in mm. a way, you know, in, in a good way as mm. well, not in a kind of Paul Darrow way. Yeah, very much yeah. Bostock as well. I mean, the unwashed squire, you know. Yes, he's Baldrick, and, basically. Yeah, he basically is. <laughs> and the way he's described here, Bostock is a wonderful squire. He has an aroma of his own. <laughs> yes, it's quite a quite a perfume. Yeah, it's Eleanor Braun as Cara, who of course employs them. Her second Doctor appearance after the cameo in City of Death. That's right, yeah. And she has her uh, accountant. They even get commented on by Bostock. They're like a double act. This is Eric Sayward influence from Robert Robert Holmes. Holmes. I mean, Eric Sayward had a great love of Robert Holmes. He was a good friend of his near the end of his life mm. and he was obviously taking that Holmes idea you know that classic double act that Holmes always shoved into his scripts yeah. uh, so you had two pretty great double acts in that story no it's it's definitely a high spot and it was mm. it closed out uh, Colin Baker's first full season yeah. season 22 season 23 returned after a bit of a hiatus at the end of season 22 uh, of course they paused the final line because they were going to say well I'll take you to and it just ends and it was going to be Blackpool Black and the Nightmare Fair with yes, uh, the return. return of the Toymaker. No, it exists as a novel or a novelisation, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. So that, and that an audio, season. I believe. Right, I mm. haven't heard that. One of the legendary missing seasons was mm. they had commissioned scripts. What was the what was the second one? Mission to Magnus. Mission to Magnus with and the Sill. S- yeah. Well, that's another the... great character to talk about oh, from yeah, of course. Colin Baker. In Vengeance and Varus are introduced to Sill, played by Nabil Shaban who is a sort of small, like, slug-like creature and uh, very avaricious in a sort of Ferengi way, long yeah. before the Ferengi, actually. I do believe that Nabil Shaban was the first disabled person to have been cast in a Doctor Who story. Okay, gosh. Writers, if I'm wrong, you know, I could well be wrong. I mean, he's a fine actor and he created a fantastic... Fantastic character. Well, Sill's just a treat. He's kind of he gleeful really and nasty yeah. and sort of that laugh. Yeah, oh. great costume. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant bit of design on that costume as mm. well. And um, he returned. He was due to return in Mission to Magnus. That's right. But instead returns in the next season, Trial of a Time Lord. Yeah. So man. after the hiatus, the sort of had a rethink and decided to do a kind of whole season with one overarching theme Mm. it was split into four stories officially it wasn't without its problems Mm. and the trial theme was kind of a nod to the fact that the program itself was considered to be on trial i didn't think about it much at the time that the more i thought about it i thought "Mm, that's a bit of (laughs) i don't know self-fulfilling prophecy or putting all your eggs in one basket yeah and very risky i suppose i like trial of a time lord i always kind of look at it as one story i know there's four separate adventures but i do find it interesting and it has a lot of um personal love for me because um our late great friend kenny davison more or less after we'd sort of just become friends he was staying at mine and i think it was i was about 19 or 18 at the time and we we spent an entire night re-editing <laughs> trial of a time because Kenny always thought there was too many trial scenes so he was like saying can we do this and we done it and he had this video version of it he was so pleased with it and then he lent it out to somebody and never saw it again <laughs> and he was talking a while ago about oh we could redo it again I went 
Jesus, you're kidding. <laughs> I don't have that amount of patience anymore, you know. I kind of have a lot of personal love for the story for the memories it gives me. But again, I think Colin Baker's great in it. The stories, the individual stories, the mysterious planet. Oh, God, we're going to hear the clink of Orphan 55 again. The mysterious planet with the, the railway station reveal, etc., you know, which got stolen by a, a less sort of competent writer <laughs> in Doctor Who's later years. Can't but I mean, you're holding up mysterious planet as something. That's <laughs> no, it's not a brilliant either. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an interesting story. It's definitely not brilliant in any way, but there are some good bits in it. I love the draft roll. I thought the designer draft roll was re- really cool. Glitz and Dibber yes, is a great combination. Uh, Queen Katrika, uh, played by Joan Sims. Yeah, yeah. Not so keen on her. It's John Nathan Turner's thing, isn't it, about getting celebs and yeah. you know, I can see his point on that, you know, it's always a good I way. Him a decent bloody role at least. I totally agree. I'd rather have better actors, but his thing was to get bums on seats. Yeah. And in the season twenty-six box set Blu-ray there is I think it's about an hour and a half profile John Nathan Turner and there's a lot of interesting things that you find out which I did find out mm. through reading that book it's about him so yeah so I mean you know you can kind of see why certain things happened but yeah. I still agree get a competent writer and well actually uh, Robert, Robert Holmes, Holmes but this is not Robert it's Holmes. not his best and he was ill and yeah. so on so it's forth. a shame it's a kind of mm. a sad ending to a yeah. great career I think let's talk about the top of the season though it starts with probably the best effect shot in classic oh, Doctor Who yeah. you know the wonderful motion controls sort of flyover of the spaceship where the trial yeah. takes place and the capturing of the TARDIS and the beam of light and that was mm. like nothing else that we'd ever seen it was mind-blowing at the time yeah I mean it's a it's a fantastic piece of model work wonderful music for it as well that yeah Dominic Glynn sort of triumphant yeah. entry into the yeah absolutely show, the problem is that I think they blew a lot of the budget on that it was on screen for what 15 seconds so and if they'd stopped there the show might have continued yeah, on for basically yeah that's great but Doctor Who isn't about how it looks. No. It's about content, it's about, you know, plot, character. I think you can sort of weigh up the cost of this against X, Y, and Z in the things, and there's nothing that really sticks out as being, you know, especially cheap looking in the rest of the season. I think the the problems the season have were basically Robert Holmes's progressing illness mm. and the, the fact that his scripts had to be butchered by the Bakers. So Pip and Jane Baker, who wrote Terror mm. of the Vervoids, of which I'm very fond, actually had to come in and rewrite the very final episode of The Ultimate Foe. And yeah. so it meant that the end, the whole climax of this huge arcing season-wide plot was just a complete Damn. mishmash in a muddle. I'm not as keen on Terror of the Vervoids. Of course, it's a murder mystery, sort yeah. of, you know, Poirot or Miss Marple or the whatever. The creepy killer plants are Yeah, really I mean, good. that is a great concept. I did mm. like the Vervoids. I liked the Hyperion as the setting. Yeah, I mean... The Land Palfrey. I think, I think they must have got the idea for the Vervoids for the Mutants episode mm-hmm. that I just watched. Uh, yes, of course. It's a very sort of bland season. I think the structure tends to fall apart a bit because really you could see that Eric Sayward's idea was him and Robert Holmes would more or less collaborate over the series mm-hmm. to give it what we now call an arc. Yeah. And But unfortunately, it didn't work. Eric Sayward was doing his best and having to get people in at the last minute. I can see why they got Pip and Jane in because they deliver. 
mm-hmm. on time and they're you know they're reliable, but I wouldn't God, say they're, they're great big writers. Doctor Who writers, it's like they're hacks. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> come oh no, totally, I totally yes. agree. It's the one thing Chibnall and I agree on, probably. But unfortunately, I suppose if you're up against the wall and it's uh, one minute to midnight and you have to sort of just go with it. But isn't that just typical? That mm. a kind of a last minute crisis and no room to manoeuvre mm. sort of just really sealed the fate. Yeah. Fortunately, not on the whole series, but certainly on Colin Baker. Well, yeah, it sealed the fate and it more or less, I think, sealed the fate on the series as well. Doctor Who from the cancellation is really being treated badly by the BBC. It's, it's kind of in the sights. Yeah. And publicly as well, there's there's an awareness that big names of the BBC are yeah. gunning for it at this point. I mean, season 24 isn't the most loved season. I still think there's some lovely elements well, to yeah. it, but we'll I don't get to think it it's course, great. I'm sure. The problem was it was improving a lot. And yeah. then, boom. It's weird to think if it hadn't been cancelled then and would have sort of dribbled on through the 90s. I mean, it's hard to say, but whether it would have come back mm. ever or in the way it did, it's just, yeah. I don't know, you can't can't see the other the other path. It's very difficult to speculate. Um, I Mind Warp, we have Brian Blessed as King Yakarnos oh, the Shouty. Wonderful. And the return of Nabil Shaban as Sil, mm. uh, this time accompanied by another of his species, Perry being the, or at least... She's not the object of lust for once. She's yeah. the object of brain brain lust. She's brain they lust. they want her they want to put the Kev Lord Kev Lord Kev's brain, brain into her skull. Consciousness. So. Lord Kev is played by Mike from the Young Ones. Okay. Yeah. It sees the end of the road for Perry initially seeming to be killed, and then that's retconned at the end of the story, and she's slightly probably worse married off to Brian Blessed's character Yukarnos it's uh, that must be an interesting household with the shrill American and the shouty alien warlord well I don't know maybe she goes for shouty men it's like she's been the TARDIS with the sixth doctor so very true it's it's a sort of clumsy season at best I think it was a lovely kind of idea just the execution of it didn't pan out then Colin was sacked he was very much scapegoated for the failings of the season not Mm -hmm. his fault at all I think it's interesting that you know he's scapegoated like you say for the failings of the show and in the same way I think that Jodie Whittaker is being scapegoated for you know a lot of the problems with Doctor Who at the moment you know we know that it's in the writing not with all episodes but certainly last season more unfortunately people only see the face of the show so she tends to get a lot of the brunt of this I mean fans are more sort of yeah it's Chibnall but you know the perception of the general public towards if they're not enjoying it is who you go to blame well you're going to blame the act yeah well hopefully yeah. not with the same result ah uh-huh, definitely not it's the end but the moment has been prepared for. Nine times out of ten. That's probably a good place to wrap up an episode then. Thank you for listening. If you've any feedback, questions, or if you're a lonely Cyberman, then we can be reached at randomizerpodcast at gmail.com. And please follow us on Twitter at randomizerpod. In both cases, that's randomizer with an S, not a Z. <laughs> And this time our celebrity guest bit of paper holder is the skull of a Vok robot. Nah, it's shy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, I get it. Yeah. Well, I feel very sad now, so... 